Welcome to episode 20 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, an incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold control. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash Danger Coffee. 
and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee with the coupon code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10 year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumer consumers from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 20 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hello, everybody. And how are you today, Jen? 
I am doing great. Again, my voice is still still terrible. <laughs> I've had my second full week with students, so if my voice is a little scratchy, that's why. We do a lot of talking at the beginning of the year, teachers do. so. <laughs> oh, I'm having all these flashbacks. Yeah, exactly. School life. I guess, okay, if I say this, it will it will sort of date when we're recording this, but did you get some glasses for the upcoming eclipse? I did. We I actually I first bought some like I don't know, a month or two ago and I got them from Amazon and then I got a notification that they were not guaranteed so we couldn't use them. So I had to scramble to find some for my 17-year-old and my husband to wear. But I'm going to be at school when the eclipse happens and I'm going to be supervising a group of kids. So the school is providing eclipse glasses for everybody. So I'm going to be spending the time looking at the children to make sure they're not staring at the sun without their glasses on. Are you going to give them like a like a huge prep talk about not taking them off, scare them pretty bad. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like some kids may not even look up ever after I'm through with them. No, no, not really. But I, I did. I have – um since I see different kids every day since I'm the gifted teacher, I have like a Monday group that I see every Monday. So last Monday – when I knew I would have them on the day of the eclipse, I told them all about an article I had read about this 70-year-old man who had a blind spot in his eye from staring at the eclipse in 1963 when he was a teenager. And they were like, what? You know? You're like, <laughs> perfect. You know, yeah, kids kids don't understand permanence of, of these these things. So hopefully they will take it seriously. How about you? Are you ready? I tried to find glasses Ever since actually I saw you post about it in the one of the Facebook groups, I right. tried to find them. I have not found them. Um, I did construct a pinhole box thing. Although that, so that's just showing the reflection of the eclipse, not the actual. Well, no, it. I think it projects. It it comes through the pinhole. Let me see if I can get my science right. The light comes through the pinhole and and is on the opposite side. It like. So you can see the light as it goes through that hole on the other side of the box. So it's not really a reflection because you don't have a mirror. But you're but looking it shows... at, so it reflects onto a piece of white paper. Oh, it is. It does have white paper inside. Mm-hmm. Okay, I thought you just saw it on the box. See, I can't remember. It's been a long time. When back in 1984, there was some sort of eclipse when I was in high school. It was not a total solar eclipse, but we looked at it through those boxes so I can't remember I didn't remember it reflecting I thought it was just like projecting it I don't know I don't know I've been (laughs) I've been thinking a lot now about light and reflection I'm like am I actually seeing it or am I seeing a reflection I don't know and then my mom told me I could go to Home Depot and buy a welder's mask graded a certain 14 they have to be 14 but I'm just gonna do the pinhole we'll see yeah we'll see (laughs) (laughs) I hope we'll see Oh my goodness. I hope so too. Yeah. Don't look directly at it. That's it. But yes, by the time this happens, by the time this podcast is out, everyone will have already done it. So yeah. Hopefully. So hopefully everybody had a wonderful, hopefully we're all still alive and exactly <laughs> and seeing and hopefully it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. The biggest thing that freaked me out is I read an article about how animals are going to be all crazy and like the snakes and running around and wild animals. I'm like, oh, great. We'll be outside with some crazy animals. No, oh my I- goodness. Our school's near the river, so I think we'll be fine. We could. I did read one thing. It was like, should I buy glasses for my pets? And it was saying no because it was saying that pets don't normally look up at the sun anyway, so they wouldn't. I don't know. 
I was like, okay. That's funny. That's Whatever. funny. No, I, I never <laughs> thought about that. I'm not keeping my cats inside for, for the eclipse. Yeah. Misty is going to be inside. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we have a lot of listener questions today. Shall we jump into all of those? Yes, let's do that. So to start, we actually have two questions that talk about sort of a similar issue. So we thought we would lump them together and then address the issue. So the first question comes from Marin, and the subject is feeling tired slash sleepy after I eat IF. And she says, hi, Jen and Melanie. Love the podcast. I listened to all of your episodes packed full of valuable info. I tried IF a couple of years ago, at that time, 5-2, after watching the Eat Fast and Live Longer documentary from Horizon. Have you watched that, Jen? I haven't watched you that. You know... I, I may have watched it a few years ago. I can't remember. I think I maybe have seen part of it. I don't know. I know I read Michael Mosley's books. So, yeah, I read five too. But hmm, I might yeah. have to wonder if it's on Netflix. We shall see. <laughs> Anyways, back to the question. So she says, at the time, I lost nine pounds, and my body responded really well to fasting. However, I didn't know about clean fasting and leaned heavily on organic stevia sodas which ultimately is what made me give up and gain back the weight. I've since given up stevia due to allergies. Random PSA. Did you know the stevia plant and the ragweed plant are in the same family? Allergic to ragweed equals allergic to stevia. Actually, this is me talking. I did know that because I'm crazy about allergy research, but <laughs> that is a very interesting fact. I actually did not know that till, um, till I read it here. So she says, then I discovered IF while fasting clean from you and Melanie. It's been so much easier to stick to this time around. And instead of 5-2, I'm doing 16-8 or 18-6 and some days 24, listening to how my body feels each day. I'm hitting the gym around three days a week also and feel good. However, I'm noticing that every day that I break my fast, after I'm sitting and digesting my food, I want nothing more than to take a nap. And some nights after work, if I break my fast at dinner time, I fall asleep straight after, like 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. I'm basically sleeping away my fun time after work and, and even time where I could be working out. It's super annoying because during the day, I feel tons of energy, but I also can't stop thinking about the food I'm going to eat when I get home. I'm about three weeks into IF right now. Anyway, is this common? Am I eating too much maybe and large portions are making me sleepy? But how can I just nibble on a tiny portion when I'm ravenous after work? I want to sustain my energy after work instead of crashing. Thanks. So that's Marin. And then second question is from Meryl, another M. Her subject is, why do I feel bad? And she says, hi, ladies. First, let me start off by saying I love your podcast. I think your format of just answering listener questions is great. I love hearing experts and learn a lot from them, but I'm just an ordinary gal who doesn't have a ton of time to devote to a diet, like cooking, learning, etc. And oftentimes the questions others ask are some of the same ones I have, so I really enjoy hearing all of them. My question is one I haven't heard you address, yet it's happened to me many times. I'll fast for a day, usually 16 hours, sometimes more, but then after I eat, I feel woozy. I don't know how to explain it other than to say I feel really, really tired and kind of dopey, like I just have to get through my chores, cleaning, taking off makeup, etc. Then sit, or I'm going to fall down. This doesn't happen every day, and I can't seem to isolate why it sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't. 
I've had it when I've eaten keto, and like tonight when I fasted for about 19 hours, then just had a tuna sandwich with some cheese on it. After dinner, I took the dog for a walk and thought I was going to pass out. I powered through it, came home, and now that I'm sitting, I feel better. Sorry for such a long post, but I'd really like to know what's going on with me. Thanks so much, Meryl. So, people getting tired after eating. What are your thoughts, Jen? Well, these are great questions, and thank you, Marin and Meryl, for the question. Because, yes, that is very common (laughs) for people, especially at the beginning um, when they adopt an intermittent fasting lifestyle. Um, Marin mentioned she's only been doing intermittent fasting for about three weeks right now. So she's still within the adjustment period or just kind of getting to the other side of it. I'm not really sure how long Meryl has been doing it. And I wonder if also, I would I would guess or predict that Meryl is probably also in early days. Um, just because this is something that we hear from people who are starting out to intermittent fasting. Now, I will say, sometimes I do get sleepy after eating. Um, that's one reason I like to have an evening window. It helps me to sleep well at night. But, you know, I'll eat my dinner. Nowadays, I'm eating around dinner around 7. I'll have a snack around 4 or 5, and then dinner ends up being around 7. And then, you know, after dinner, I'm, I'm not really doing a lot of things that, you know, where I have to be active. That's when I sit with my husband and we chat about our day. We may watch TV, but I am one of those people that likes to go to bed pretty early because I have to get up early. So I'm usually ready to go to bed about 9, 9.30, 10, 10.30, depending on, you know, what day of the week it is. So I'm not having that total crash after dinner anymore. I say that, though, last night or yesterday after I had my snack, I did take a little nap. (laughs) Of course, it's the the weekend, and I don't usually do that. Um, So... That was just interesting because it made me think of the, how I, I never have that happen, but it did yesterday. So <laughs> anyway, digestion takes a lot of energy. So as you're going about your day and you're in the fasted state, you know, you have the energy that we love so much during the fast. And then you eat and your body directs your energy to digesting what you just ate. And so a lot of stuff's going on in the body. And you, you get that tired feeling because the energy is being used elsewhere. You know, also I like to think about, you know, the big cats who may, you know, like a lion or a tiger who goes and chases down their prey and then they all lay around and sleep. So I think it's typical for us to be tired after a big meal. You know, I think about Thanksgiving, you know, we're used to that. We eat our big Thanksgiving dinner and then we need to have a nap for the rest of the day. So hopefully this will get better for you over time. As I said, this doesn't happen to me 90% of the time, although I did get a little sleepy yesterday, as I mentioned. But how about you, Melanie? Does this happen to you? So yeah, so some similar thoughts there. That's actually a reason I do as well, like you, (laughs) really like the evening window is because it helps me sleep well. Um, I do find that I'm super awake, super alert, super productive, and then once I eat, it's kind of like okay, time to time to time to slow down. Um, I do think it could be two possible things, though. So I think the first thing could be what you talked about, just as far as digestion taking a lot of energy. And so Marin talked about it being maybe large portion sizes. Definitely think it could be that. It also could be an indication of eating a food that you're allergic to or that your body is not responding well to, especially if you're getting brain fog or feeling woozy in that way. So I'd really encourage you to look at what you're eating. I know you said it's hard to find, Meryl, um, that you couldn't really find 
a trend as to why it's happening, but maybe there could be something there. So you could look at what you're eating and see if potentially there's something that you're reacting to. So as far as Marin asked for advice about how to tackle this problem, how to sustain her energy. So I would suggest, I personally find for me that I don't get sleepy and I don't know how, if this is the same with you, Jen, but the large portions and the protein seems to be what makes me sleepy. Something that you could try is maybe munching on like fruits or veggies at the beginning and try to sustain your energy that way rather than committing to your main meal or something similar. Try just munching on some nuts or something to address your immediate hunger, um, but then still keep your energy going and then have your big meal later. You could also try, unless it spikes your blood sugar, you'll, and you'll have to know this for you personally, but you could maybe try sipping on green juices or something like that. Yes, you will be instigating your eating window, but I think you could start your eating window and still maintain your energy. If you can just find a food that provides some quick energy without slowing you down. Like, does that make sense, Jen? That does. And now that you mention it, you know, I hadn't thought about that I did have, you know, it might be what, what you're eating. You're right. When I eat a lot of heavy protein foods, that is when I get a little, a little more lethargic and sleepy, kind of like those lions that I was talking about. But, but, you know, yesterday I mentioned I, I got a little sleepy, but I had like this bean dip, but that was a lot higher in protein that it, well, I normally break my fast. I'm pretty boring. I love to have avocado and guacamole. So, and I, I usually don't get sleepy at all, but then I, yesterday I had this bean dip and then I was like, oh, I think I'll have a little nap. So that's interesting because I'm sure that's a lot more protein than I normally have to break my fast. I'm going to have to pay attention to that and see. Um, one other thing I thought about, well, two things I thought of that I wanted to mention. This is why my menu, my um, my window is late in the day and why I can't, just can't eat lunch. You know, you mentioned that, but whenever I eat lunch, I am just so sleepy and lethargic the rest of the day. I just can't do it. But I also wanted to say that Marin mentioned something I wanted to bring up, and she said that she's finding fasting to be a lot easier now that she's learned how to fast clean. And I wanted to say I'm so glad, Marin, that you're noticing the difference because it's true. <laughs> Jen's favorite thing. Well, it is my favorite thing because we we you know if, if you're having a hard time, you need to really look at what you're possibly ingesting during the fast because that makes it so much harder. And then you think, wow, fasting is hard. I just can't do it. And you don't think that it's, you know, the cream that you're drinking all day in your coffee or the stevia that has zero calories. And you think, well, no, those, those aren't bothering me. But then you try it without those things like Marin has done. And it's just so much easier. So I wanted to highlight that and point it out because I do think it's important. Yeah. And let us know, Marin and Meryl, how it goes for you. If you find something that works for you and we can, uh, let others know. Because I think a lot of people probably deal with this. So this would be a great thing to get advice on from things, from people. Yeah, I think so too. All right. Are we ready for the next question? Yes, yes. All right. This is from Sarah. And the subject is oil pulling while fasting. And Sarah says, what do you think of oil pulling while fasting? I oil pull with a MCT oil mouthwash that also contains peppermint oil and stevia. Although I spit repeatedly all of the oil out after 10 minutes, I wonder if any of the MCT oil is absorbed orally and if this might be breaking my fast. Do you think the sweet taste of the stevia could cause an insulin release even though, once again, I'm spitting it out? What do you think, Melanie? Okie dokie. I was wondering when we were going to get our first oil pulling question. Do you oil pull? 
you know, I have, I've gone through periods of time where I have, and then I will, and then I'll stop for a while. Um, so yes, I, I have done oil pulling. I use coconut oil. Okay. I've used coconut oil and I've used MCT oil. So oil pulling for listeners who do not know what it is, it's basically where you put some oil into your mouth, such as coconut oil or MCT oil, and you swish it around in your mouth for around 10 to even like 20 minutes, which can seem like a long time, but it's kind of, I don't know, I think it's kind of fun. (laughs) For me, it was like until I started to gag, then it had to go. Yeah. (laughs) And the idea is that the oil attaches to toxins and different things. Some people say it can actually pull toxins out of your bloodstream through the membranes in your mouth. And it's really good for like teeth whitening and just um, your oral, your, your mouth health as well. So that's what that is. As far as it breaking the fast, I would recommend, Sarah, that you don't use the this concoction that you're buying that's like a, a mouthwash with all the stuff. Um there's no reason to. You could just use straight up MCT oil or coconut oil, and I think that's going to substantially address any potential problems there. I don't know if stevia is going to be causing an insulin release for you personally. It might be. It might not. Only you can know that. So I would just encourage you to try straight up MCT oil or straight up coconut oil. I do think if you're if you want to be super duper safe, the straight up MCT oil is going to be the least likely to cause any sort of breaking of fasts. Um, but yeah, what, what are your thoughts, Jen? Well, I differ a little bit on the stevia as far as like, I would say, absolutely. <laughs> With this, you know, you know, that's how I, yeah. it just, it's based on the research that I read about the, the guys who were swishing the sweet flavors in their mouth and then spitting them out and then um, having the insulin release, even though they weren't ingesting it. And so ever since I read that, I, I was like, okay, I don't want this to happen. Now, normally, if you're just using mouthwash, you know, we, we've talked about this before, mouthwash, brushing your teeth, it's going to have a little bit of sweetness, but not for like 10 to 20 minutes. So I think that I would not use anything with stevia, you know, for a prolonged 10 to 20 minute period. Um, you really just don't need it. You could just use regular MCT oil, like you said, Melanie. And, you know, if you like the, the I never thought of putting peppermint oil in there with it. Um, but you could make your own. Just add, add add the peppermint oil to your MCT oil and get the same benefit. That actually sounds like a great idea. Now I'm interested in trying it. Because <laughs> for me, like you said, Melanie, I've read a lot about it. And there are some very far-fetched claims as to what it will actually do for you. Whether they're true or not, I don't know. But I always approached it as more dental health related, like clearing out, you know, whatever might be around my teeth or my gums, whatever. So, um it just seemed like something that would be helpful there. So, no, I don't think that, that oil pulling is going to break your fast, but I absolutely would not recommend a product with stevia in it. Same here. And I will throw out one last thing. So I have done a lot of personal research on MCT oil because I'm a bit obsessed with things like that. So I'll put a link in the show notes to the MCT oils that I use because I do think the the processing and the packaging and Everything is very important, and I've done a lot of research. So if you go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 20, we'll put links there to some great MCT oils that also won't break the bank because if you go to Amazon, um, you can get some for better prices than others. So shall we move on to our next question? Yes, let's do that. Okay. So this one comes from Julian, and the subject is timing your fast. And Julian says... Have you ever tried to find out the optimum time for a fast? 
I currently have an evening meal, then fast for the whole of the next full day, and my next meal will be the following day at breakfast. I combine this with a reduction in carbs so I don't eat potatoes, bread, pasta, and rice. I am so pleased with the results that I'm a little reluctant to reduce the time or even eat the 500 calories on a fast day. I do drink water, green tea, and black coffee on a Friday fast day. Thanks for your podcast. Cheers, Julian. And that might answer our question. Jen and I were talking and we were wondering if Julian was from the UK. But since he says cheers, maybe he is. I bet he is. Yeah, that was what we were. <laughs> we, we both thought he probably was based on his question. Um, and he didn't specify in the question, but I am making an inference here that he is doing um, a fasting protocol called 5-2. Marin mentioned that in her um in her question as well, that was the first one. She mentioned the Eat Fast and Live Longer documentary from the UK. And so that's the that's where the 5-2 um, fasting regimen became popular. And just as a quick summary of that regimen, the way that it is originally structured, you know, um, Julian referenced the 500 calories on a fast day. Michael Mosley came up with this plan. And for two days out of the week, two of the seven days, you would have a 500-calorie day, which he called a fasting day. And then the other five days, you, quote, you know, eat normally like you would normally eat, like you were not on any kind of regimen. So two fasting days, five days of eating normally. And the fasting days had 500 calories. Now, Julian said that he does not want to, he, he does not eat the 500 calories on a fast day. And I was the same exact way, Julian. I have tried 5-2 and 4-3. 4-3 would be the same, except you have three fasting days a week. I um, used 5-2 as a maintenance plan. It worked very well for maintenance, two, two full fasting days, and then five regular eating days. Whereas to lose weight, I needed three fasting days and then the four regular eating days. Um, but I found, just like Julian did, that when I would eat 500 calories on the, the quote, fasting day, I would be actually starving and hungrier. So I didn't like that. So I found that I would be better off just to do a full fast. So I would do the the two full fasts a week or the three full fasts a week, depending on whether it was five, two or four, three. So um, I understand that, that he may not want to add the food on those days and, and do the full fast instead. He also is reducing carbs. So his question is, how do you find the optimum time for the fast? And see, that's a great question that I don't believe that we can answer or anyone can answer based on just, you know, one answer for every person. I think that we're also very different metabolically and so many factors that there is no one time that's the best. If you're doing 5-2 right now, which I'm assuming, and it is working well for you, then I think you should keep doing that. Then that is optimum for you. For me, 5-2 was not optimum for losing weight. I needed 4-3 for losing weight. But then once I had done it for a while, you know, I was losing weight, I realized I did not like the pattern of 4-3 of or 5-2. I prefer having a satisfying meal every day, which is why I switched to the daily eating window, and I haven't looked back. I have no desire to go back to 5-2 or 4-3, because every day I get to eat to satisfaction within my eating window, and I never have to have a full fast or go to bed in the fasted state. I also had trouble sleeping on those days. So basically, 
I'm answering your question by saying there is no answer to your question. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is where you have to find out what feels right to you and what works for you. You may love the 5-2 pattern. You may love having those two days that you worry about it and the other five you don't. I found that I started to dread those fasting days, the full fasts. And I even started to dread the days where I was eating all day because it was I didn't like the way I felt when I ate all day. So you've got to just find a way that feels right for you, a pattern that is, is giving you the results that you want, and it feels good for your body. So the answer is no answer. What do you think, <laughs> Melanie? I love everything that you said. Um, I, so I do wonder, Julian, you don't talk about how much you weigh now or how much weight you have to lose. I think that's an important factor. Um, because I do think when we fall into the routine of fasting and it feels really good, we do often reach that point where you want to just keep going. Cause you're like, I feel so good. Why would I <laughs> want to eat? And of course, Jen and I are not doctors. So keep that in mind. Um, but I think it's safer in the long run. If you have a lot of weight to lose to fast longer and eat less calories. Whereas if you're at maintenance or even underweight, I wouldn't suggest doing that quite as much. So I think that could be huge. Um, I do know for me as well, because when I first started fasting, I was low, like very low carb. And I actually had a similar experience. I mean, I wasn't doing five, two, but I was doing the one meal a day. And on the lower carb approach, by the end of the day, I was rarely ever hungry. And I think that might've been because cortisol was probably kicking in, um, due to the lack of carbs. And that was kind of blunting my hunger. I find that now that I eat more carbs in my eating window, I actually do get hungrier each and every day. So that's just a little thing. And then I talk about this book all the time, but, um, so the book, the yoga of eating has a really good quote about fasting. And it says something to the effect of, just becoming really in tune with the fast and your body will let you know when the fast is over. Um, so rather than like hardcore pre-planning, just listening to your body and when it says the fast is over, then the fast is over. Um, so that's just a little something, something, but yeah, it's like, it's like what Jen said. I, we can't really answer it. There's not one optimum time for anybody. I don't think. Yeah. And you'll, you'll find out what feels right. Some people love 5-2 and they love 4-3 or alternate day fasting. And and it's like they, it feels great to their bodies. So you've just got to figure out what feels good to you and do that. Exactly. Like you, Jen, I I do not do well with something like 5-2. Yeah. I need my my one big meal. I do too. It makes makes me happy. And I've thought before, do I, would I like to ever go back to it? And no, <laughs> I don't. It doesn't, it doesn't suit me as well. So... All right, ready for the next question? Yes. This is from Mary Ellen, and the subject is fruit and getting sick. And Mary Ellen says, hi, I wanted to know why I get sick eating fruit. It doesn't seem to matter what type of fruit I eat during my window. I tend to get very sick and bloated for days after consuming. I have tried eating first thing when opening my window. I tried eating at the end of my window and sometimes while eating my meal. When I was younger, I had dangerously low blood sugar and don't want to fall into that again. Thank you so much. What do you think, Melanie? All right. Well, hi, Mary Ellen. Super duper excited about your question as a fruit lover here who also struggles with fruit problems. I know. <laughs> um, so I love fruit. I think it's great. And I'm not going to go on a crazy tangent, but I could go on a crazy tangent about how fruit um, 
is naturally designed to be eaten like it quote wants to be eaten so it's lower in toxins than like vegetables and things like that um, because it's the way that the plant spreads its seed that's a whole tangent i just could talk about fruit forever (laughs) um (laughs) anyways so i totally hear you though with experiencing digestive distress with fruit there are two things that are potentially going on and they likely are both going on as well So the first thing is fructose malabsorption, and some people, basically their body, it's a genetic thing, and their bodies are just not so good with processing fructose, which, as you can guess, is pretty high in fruit. Um, So what happens is we don't properly absorb the sugar, and then it ferments in the intestines, which leads to gas and bloating and just not fun times. And then in addition to that, fructose is actually... I don't know how you say it. Is it osmo- osmotic? Os- osmotic? Hmm, like it um, attaches water to it, basically. Um, so it can instigate diarrhea that way. So some ways that you can address that, fruits that actually have, and this is getting really specific, but fruits that have equal ratios of fructose to glucose actually absorb better in the intestines than fruits that have higher fructose compared to glucose. And that sounds really complicated, but you can basically Google like fructose malabsorption. Actually, I'll find a good link to something, to a list. I'm sure there's like a list or I'll create a list. (laughs) Um, So we'll put a link to something in the show notes to help you um, with fruits that might not be good for fructose malabsorption. Something you could test for that, because I know you said that you're opening your window with fruit or closing it or eating it with it. If you can try eating fruit completely alone and then not eating anything else for a while and see how you react, that might indicate if you have fructose malabsorption or not. Second thing related, um, you might have fructose malabsorption, you might not have fructose malabsorption. Either way, when the fruit is fermenting in your intestines, if you have a messed up balance of gut bacteria, that can cause a problem because the gut bacteria basically eat the fruit and it ferments and that leads to gas and bloating and just not fun times. And so that's where the low FODMAT diet comes into play, which I am a huge fan of. And so that basically identifies foods that have fermentation potential from gut bacteria. So it basically is lists of foods that have sugars that will likely be fermented by um, by gut bacteria. And Mary Ellen, this is another way that you could check is you could see if these certain fruits bother you and these other fruits don't. I don't know if you've tried this. High FODMAP fruits are things like apples and pears, whereas low FODMAP fruits are things like berries, kiwi, pineapple, which everybody everybody knows now that I love pineapple. I get so many messages being like, I love pineapple. Um, <laughs> so I know that's like a lot of information. If you go to go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 20, I will put a link to my really crazy low FODMAP guide. It covers like 300 different foods and you can look on there. Um, so that's something you can try is the type of fruit that you're eating. So the takeaway is there's something going on with your digestion, potentially gut bacteria. You might have to eat fruit alone. You might have to eat certain types of fruit. I could talk about fruit forever, so I'm going to stop now. (laughs) How about you, Jen? Well, I think you did a great job answering answering the question um, for Mary Ellen. And I just want to add, really, I'm not going to add much about the fruit because you covered that well. (laughs) But I want to add for everybody, intermittent fasting shows us what foods do not work for us very, very well. 
And I think that's one of the main benefits of intermittent fasting. You know, when you were before, you know, adopting this type of lifestyle, you may have just not felt well all the time when you were eating all day and you didn't really know why. But when you're in the fasted state and then you eat something that doesn't agree with you, your body lets you know right away. And so, you know, you should always believe your body when you you have a hunch that something isn't working for you. Now, the reason that it isn't working, even with fruit, it could be a multitude of things, as Melanie said. So identifying what doesn't work for you is important. And we all have such different issues going on in our bodies. So pay attention to what foods that these these are that are causing you trouble. Experiment with them. And, you know, you didn't, oh, you did say that it doesn't matter what type of fruit. So I bet, I bet you're right, Melanie, with the, um, the fructose malabsorption. Yeah, definitely check out that guide that I have. So, all righty. Next question comes from David. The subject is three weeks in, years till goal. And David says, I am 5'10 and have over 200 pounds to lose, so this will take a while. (laughs) I am three weeks in and feel better than I have in years. I'm 57. Clothes are getting loose already. To speed things up, when I started, I decided to limit myself to 1,200 to 1,500 calories a day. Is that a bad idea? I thought about keeping it that way until I'm within 50 pounds of my goal and then either not count calories or up them until I lose one to two pounds a week. I've lost a lot of weight before, and it wouldn't surprise me if I'm losing a pound a day right now. P.S. I never had a blood sugar problem, but the info that sweet, no-calorie drinks, etc. gives a strong insulin response in the last podcast I listened to explains a few hunger issues for me. And actually, David's question made me think of something because Mary Ellen said at the end of her question that she had um, low blood sugar, and she didn't want to fall into that again. I meant to say... Another thing that she could try is addressing low blood sugar with like starches or a different source of sugar or potentially low carb. I just wanted to throw that out there because we left that out of her question. Yeah, we we did. We didn't mention that at all. So yeah. So but back to David. So I guess his main question is, is it okay to, you know, purposely restrict calories for quite a while when he has lots of weight to lose? So what are your thoughts about that? Well, I actually... I'm not a fan of having a, a very strict calorie allowance that you go to day after day. And basically, I want you, David, to learn how to rely on how your body feels and, and go by that when you're eating, in your eating window. Um, you know, the debate is, will your body adjust if you're eating the same amount of calories day after day after day? And one theory is no, because you're fasting, so your body is you know, burning your fat all day and your body is not going to perceive that you're in an energy deficit because you're burning your fat, you're accessing it during the clean fast. But the other theory is if you are like having the exact same amount of calories day after day, that 1,200 to 1,500 range that you're limiting yourself to, you know, maybe maybe that could cause some adaptation. There's some debate about that. So my best advice is to not have it be the same day after day. Um, to prevent that adaptation from becoming a problem. You know, theoretically, we hope that that would never happen, but instead, listen to your body. Some days, you're going to be hungrier than others, and on those days, you need to eat a little bit more. Listen to those cues from your body. Some days, you may not even be hungry enough to eat 1,200 calories. I know that might sound crazy. You know, if we're used to counting calories, that we know that we're, quote, supposed to never go below 1,200 calories a day. But if you're actually following your body's satiety signals, 
you stop when you're satisfied. And if you count it up and you realize, oh my gosh, I only had 1,100 calories today, but I'm satisfied, what should I do? You're going to eat more out of fear that you haven't had enough when your body has told you you've had enough. You know, versus another day, you may eat that same exact amount of food and your body is like, send some more food down. And that day you might need 1,800 calories for that day. So I'm a big fan of listening to your body instead of having it the same you know, in that same range day to day to day. That 1,200 to 1,500 calorie range is is diet thinking that we've been trained for all these years to think that that is what we need to do to lose weight. And instead, rely on those satiety signals. Um, I'm going to recommend Dr. Bert Hearing's book, Appetite Correction. If you have not read that yet, it is a brilliant book. And it really helped me overcome my fear of eating too few calories or too many calories. And after reading it, I completely realized there was no need to count. Once you've been intermittent fasting and you're fasting clean, which you mentioned that you're doing, you know, you're not having those no-cal drinks, your body gets great at seeing, you know, what's going on with your metabolism. You're burning your fat during the fast. And your body will let you know, time to stop eating. You've had enough today. Or if your body is worried you haven't had enough, it'll send you some hunger signals. And you should listen. You know, if you ever get the urge to just binge like crazy, that's a bad sign. Your body is saying that it's not happy and that it's in distress in some way or another. So your goal, instead of keeping the eye on those calories like we've been trained to do over diet after diet, is to pay attention, stop when you feel satisfied but not overly full, and don't worry. If your body feels good and you're satisfied, you've had the right amount to eat. What do you think, Melanie? Yes, I'm on a very similar page. Um, I think your proposal about just letting it happen naturally is is probably the best way to go. So I'm I'm not a doctor. I do think that if you do have a ton of weight to lose and you're consuming less calories that, like I said before in an earlier question, it's probably safer in the long run than if you're at maintenance. I think if you're naturally consuming a lo- less amount of calories because that's just what your body needs at that point, I think that's completely fine. But I would just encourage you not to have the restrictive mindset. So just don't count the calories, like Jen said. I think it'd be better actually to potentially consume like 500 calories one day and then, you know, like 2,000 calories the next rather than 1,200 each and every day, again, like Jen said. And then I will throw this out there because this is just my inner Whole Foods paleoness coming out, but you don't talk at all about what you're eating. Um, So I would encourage you to try to consume nutritious food when you are eating. And I think that'll make it much safer, much more sustainable and much more healthy in the long run, especially on those days when you're consuming less. Because I think, I honestly think that 500 calories of super nutritious food, is probably way better than, you know, 2000 calories of not super nutritious food. So I think that could be huge. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But really, when we start to worry too much about controlling our, our our caloric intake, that's when we, we learn to override the signals that our body is sending us. So as I said, read Appetite Correction by Dr. Bert Hearing. I highly recommend it. It's a very simple book. It's not um, that complicated, but I had a lot of light bulb moments when I was reading it of like, oh, okay, we really should learn to listen <laughs> to our bodies. And it's hard to get out of that thinking of, well, if I just count these calories, I'll lose weight faster. I wish they had never come up with the calories. Thing. Me too. Me too. Ever. 
ever, ever. <laughs> um, but we'll put a link to that book in the show notes, and I will order that book as well because I haven't read it. It's really a good one. But is there an audiobook of it? I'm such an audiobook fan. I don't know if there's an audiobook, but it's available for free if you have Kindle Unlimited. So Oh, I, I did at one point. I probably still do. We'll see. I'll get it either way. So shall we move on to our next question? Yes, this question is from Alyssa, and the subject is newbie. And Alyssa says, intermittent fasting has become such a hot topic. I'm so glad I found your podcast to educate, inform, and bring to light some of my many lingering questions. I've been toying with the idea of starting IF because I hate the six meals a day routine. All I can do is look at the clock until it's time to feed again. LOL. Oh, this is me talking, but I get it, Alyssa. (laughs) And now Alyssa continues, I have a few particular questions of my own. Number one, my body automatically gets a headache as a way of expressing any sort of distress. Hot, cold, stressed, tired, thirsty, hungry, etc. I've always struggled with restrictive calorie diets because midday, I always get a headache. If I don't take meds, such as Excedrin, Advil, etc., my headache will turn into a migraine. Question, have you found that the normal hunger signals subside after training your body? Also, have either of you experienced hunger headaches? Number two, I decided to do one 24-hour fast where I stop eating at 5 p.m. and then I will have my meal the next day at 5 p.m. I was making my children some pasta for dinner and without even thinking about it, I took a bite to see if it was too hot. Question, What happens to your body if you accidentally eat a bite of food and essentially break your fast? Have you ruined the entire process? And number three, finally, I know there are a lot of benefits to a probiotic supplement. Question, when do you all recommend taking a probiotic or any other supplement? Lots of great questions there. Lots of great questions. And Alyssa, I love that you delineated it by question (laughs) so we can address the questions (laughs) okay so for the first question talking about hunger headaches so we've talked about this a lot on the podcast before um so headaches are basically a sign that something is not going well (laughs) so either inflammation or your body's just not dealing with properly using energy so they're a sign of something going wrong And ultimately, intermittent fasting should serve to address that. I think a lot of people find that. I used to get headaches all the time, growing up especially. Now I literally never get a headache. And if I do, I realize it's usually something that I ate. I didn't ever get hunger headaches, though, that I'm aware of. So I can't speak to that specifically. But I can say in general that I do think your hunger headaches will go away with intermittent fasting. And this is also just me personally speaking. Um, I'd also super encourage you, if you can in any way, not to take um, Excedrin or Advil. I know it can automatically fix the issue in the moment, but those are actually really, really bad for your GI tract. They can um, create holes in your gut and exacerbate digestive issues and then inflammatory issues resulting from such So I'm not a fan. (laughs) Um, So if you can try to find some other ways to address that, I think intermittent fasting will really, really help. And so I really encourage you to stick to it. And I really think that you'll see benefits. Do you want to go and talk about that question? Maybe we can go question by question. Yeah, let's do that. I actually, Alyssa, am someone who did get hunger headaches. So I know what you're talking about. Oh, perfect. Perfect. I mean, not perfect, but. (laughs) Well, yeah. Perfect that I know, right? Yes. So yes, I I used to get those a lot. um, And I don't get them now during the fast. So, you know, you are... um, toying with the idea of starting IF, you're, 
you, it sounds to me like you haven't really like jumped right in. You're not adjusted. If you've tried it, you're not, you haven't given yourself time to adjust intermittent fasting. So this is something you're probably going to struggle with during the adjustment period more so than, than maybe other people, but your body is that the headache can be a signal that your body or your brain needs some, some fast energy from your blood glucose, but because you're fasting and you're not eating at the time, your body doesn't know where to get this energy because you've reached the bottom of, of the energy that was available. So until your body gets used to fat burning during the fast, you may have the headaches happen um, and you know, you'll be lethargic, you'll be tired. This is just the, the difficult part of adjusting. But once you get to the other side, it is so much better. So, um, you know, Melanie mentioned that some of those painkillers may not be great for your for your tummy, may not be good for your digestive tract. But see what you can do to get through this, you know, adjustment period. And then hopefully you'll never have these headaches again. People do worry that when they start an intermittent fasting lifestyle that, you know, you're going to have debilitating headaches every single day. And I can promise you that if we did, we wouldn't be doing it. Exactly. You know, <laughs> it doesn't happen. You know, all of these symptoms that we get when we skip a couple of meals, when we're not adjusted to intermittent fasting, those just go away and vanish. And it's just amazing how much better you feel when you're fasting after your body's used to it. All right. And so then her next question is about if you accidentally eat a bite of food and break your fast, have you ruined the entire process? So for starters, I don't like the word ruined because it sounds it creates this idea that you're doing something right or wrong or that you've done something irrevocable that you need to change. So I just encourage you don't see it as like ruining or oh no, like I've just <laughs> I messed up and I can't go back. Rather you can just see it as like a learning experience or a growing experience. So that's just a whole little terminology thing. But so as far as actually does eating a slight bite of food break your fast? So I guess she's talking about having this bite of food before her window, That's, before yeah. her eating window. Right? I think I think it's when she was like cooking something for her children and she popped it in her mouth. You know, a lot of people do that. You know, we're cooking for our families and you're used to popping it in your mouth without even thinking or licking your finger. I've done that. So yes, what you ate is going to require digestion. It is potentially going to spike insulin. But I, I just wouldn't stress about it. It's okay. <laughs> Life will go on. Um, and if it's a really super small bite of food, you're going to deal with it pretty quick. And then you're probably going to jump back into the fasted state pretty quickly after that anyway. I mean, it might make you ultimately hungrier. That would be the main problem is you, you, know, you eat something and then you get a ravenous appetite because your body's like, food time. Um, but yeah, so I wouldn't see it as ruining. It's okay. Just keep on keeping on. What are your thoughts, Jen? It's the same thing. Yes, you have, you know, broken your fast, but you have not ruined your life <laughs> or your fast. And you may find that it stimulates hunger, though, and that's the hardest part is that now you're going to be, like, starving, and it'll be harder to continue with the fast. So that's the only thing that, that might be a drawback. But, you know, really just if you can move on like it never even happened, that's really, I think, the best the best plan. Ignore it if you can, though I think for me it might make me just so hungry that, you know, once I've started eating, I'm just like, okay, time to eat. <laughs> Same here. I would have to, like, probably go run around. Like, if I do physical activity, I think that helps me get back into the fasted state. Well, yeah, it would. It would help you if you can ignore the hunger for a little while and get back in. Yep. 
All right. And so her last question, probiotics and supplements. So many of us today do struggle with messed up gut microbiome situations. <laughs> the probiotics are the, the bacteria in our gut system, and they also actually interact with our immune system, and they can just influence so many things in the body from inflammation to our mood. They also generate short-chain fatty acids, which are a source of energy. So yeah, and then a lot of us do struggle with messed up gut microbiomes because We'll be born by C-section, so we don't get the initial, and this is kind of gross, but we don't get the initial exposure to our mother's probiotic um, at birth. And then um, also all the antibiotics that we take today can really do a number on our gut population. So as far as when to take probiotics, so there are two, okay, there are a lot of probiotics out there. <laughs> Let me start by saying that. Um, and you have to find the ones that work for you personally. 